بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Alhamdulillah, this is our November session for Ask the Imam. And subhanAllah, usually at the end of each month, I get a bunch of questions. The last few days of each month. But as, it's as if people anticipate that they'll get answered in the next one. But we have a backlog of questions. So a lot of these questions, some of them are good enough or relevant enough to what I'm organizing that I pick the newest ones, but usually I'm going from a backlog. So I have a, an assorted amount of questions tonight. There's about eight of them. But as you know, as we've seen over time, one question will have in it four or five, maybe even more questions. And another curious thing you find in the questions is that they often assume certain things that shouldn't be taken at face value that need a little bit of unpacking as well. So the first question is a food question. That's the favorite of so many people. This question says, Assalamu alaikum. Is it allowed for Muslims, according to the Hanafi fiqh, to eat food that contains collagen peptides derived from animals? Does it matter what animal it was and how it was slaughtered? What about istihala in that case. So there's a couple of things that have to be unpacked from the question itself. So how many of you have heard of collagen peptides? If you're into working out, maybe you've heard of them. It's, think of, it's like a gelatin, right? You mix it into a hot drink and it's good for your bones, your teeth, your hair, your nails. It's good for your joints. It's actually quite good. And my understanding is that virtually all of the collagen peptides out there in the market are of bovine source. So they all come from cows. So from my understanding, it's directly from the animal source. It's directly from a cow. And this means that it's not a case of istihala. So the questioner mentioned, what about istihala? Well, what is istihala? Istihala is when an animal, no matter what kind of animal it is, cow, dog, pig, you name it, dies and decomposes and remains in that decomposed state for so long that it under, undergoes a complete chemical transformation. An example would be an animal that dies in the middle of the desert. And it rots, it decays, decomposes, and over time, months, maybe a year, it becomes salt. You discover that salt, and that salt has an origin in that animal. Is it allowed for you to consume that salt? The answer is yes, according to this istihala, because it's undergone a complete chemical transformation. So its essence is no longer the same essence 
Before, the essence was a cow or a dog or a pig, but after that decomposition is changed into a different essence altogether, and you could consume that salt. So the question here is, do we consider collagen peptides uh, as a kind of istihala, where it's taken from a bovine source, from a cow, but it's undergone a sufficient degree of change where it's no longer considered to even be of a bovine product? Uh, the answer is no, because it's still identified as the byproduct of the cow. It's not that far separated from the cow in the process of manufacture to be considered istihala. So what that means is the rulings for meat apply to the rulings of collagen. So if the collagen is from a halal source, it's halal. If it's from a kosher source, then it's halal for us. And the only question is if it comes from a source that's not kosher and not halal, does it come from Ahlul Kitab? So that goes back to that long discussion we had in the Fardain class about the legal status of eating the meat of Ahlul Kitab. And we mentioned that because the question is asking about the Hanafi madhab. In the Hanafi school, if you're going to eat the meat of Ahlul Kitab, there has to be tasmiyah. They have to mention the name of Allah at the time of slaughter. So that would allow for eating kosher meat, but that would probably rule out eating meat from non-kosher sources because they don't really do tasmiyah. So if you go to the market and you find collagen peptides for sale, if they're not halal and they're not kosher, and you want to stick to that position in the Hanafi school, which is quite strict, you would avoid them. If you take a more lenient view on the meat of Ahlul Kitab, then that would apply to the collagen as well. But you could always go for the kosher option. I don't know of any halal option out there. I'm sure there's something. But you have kosher options. Um, the, the one that I use is actually a kosher option. It's called Great Lakes Kosher Collagen. It's pretty good. And you can consume that, and inshallah you will be doing something, you will be consuming something that is halal. So the next question says, is it haram to believe something will bring you good fortune or good luck? Is it also haram to say good luck or bad luck or believe in luck in general? So this is a question about luck. So there's actually two questions here. There's the question about believing that something will bring you good luck or bad luck. And then there's the question about describing or saying good luck. You know, good luck on your exam. Or something bad happened, you said, oh, that was bad luck. What's the ruling on that? Two separate questions here. So. You know, what I like to do often when I get questions like this, I like to look at the meanings of the words and I like to ask, what is the equivalent word in Arabic? Because often when you find the Arabic equivalent, it, it sheds a lot of light on the issue and offers a lot of clarity. Now, does anyone know the Arabic word for luck? Halv. Halv. 
That is the Arabic word for luck. So what is hadh? If you go into the ma'ajim, the Arabic dictionaries, they define hadh as nasibun min al-khayr, a share or a portion of good fortune. So according to the scholars of the Arabic language, that is the meaning of what we call luck. Hadh, it's your portion, your nasib of something good, good fortune. Now, according to the Hadith scholar and Faqih, Imam Abdul Rahman, Afwan, Abdul Rauf Al Munawi, he mentions in his commentary on Al Jami' al Sagheer that Hadh, he defines it in, in the Hadith commentary. He says, Al Nasib Al Maqdur. It is the, the portion or the share that is decreed for you. It's decreed for you. So based on that definition of hadh in the Arabic language, which translates as luck, good luck, bad luck, you can say good luck as a kind of dua for someone. It's a kind of shorthand for dua. May you have a good hadh. May you have a good share, or a share of good fortune. So according to that meaning, it would be permissible, and there's nothing wrong with saying good luck. If that's what you intend. Now, if you say to someone who's had something good happen to them, you had good luck, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. If something bad happens to them and you said you had bad luck, there's nothing wrong with that, provided what you intend is this meaning that we've described here that it is halv, which means a portion or a share of good fortune or bad fortune, both of which are maqdoor, both of which are decreed. And when you say maqdoor, it means decreed. It's the object of whose decree? Allah's decree. That's the maqdoor. So according to that meaning, it's completely permissible to say good luck or you had bad luck because it's a kind of shorthand. And when a believer says good luck or bad luck, we interpret what they say through the lenses of tawheed. You understand? We call this the qarina. When the person does something or says something that bears the possibility of having a good meaning or a bad meaning, if they are a mu'min, a believer, who affirms tawheed, then you interpret it in light of tawheed. You don't interpret it through anything else, anything that's blameworthy. So that would be the permissible way of saying good luck or you had bad luck. However, if a person says good luck or bad luck while thinking that that thing that is good luck or bad luck has happened outside of the qadr of Allah, autonomously, independently, of Allah's power, and they ascribe the effect to that thing other than Allah Ta'ala, that would be haram. And we have an example of this. Uh, and I mentioned this actually last week in the khutbah because we we're talking about superstition. And there's a hadith in Sahih Muslim where the Prophet was with the companions one morning and he related in what we call a hadith qudsi, a sacred tradition 
where he is relating the words of Allah Ta'ala in meaning, bilma'ana, but it's not Qur'an. He says that Allah Azza wa Jal says, some of uh, my servants have awoken today as disbelievers in me and believers in the stars. And some of them have awoken as believers in me and disbelievers in the stars. He says, as for the one who wakes up in the morning as a disbeliever in me and a believer in the stars, this is the person who says, We receive rain due to this or that star based on the jahili belief, the superstition, that the alignment of certain stars would cause rainfall. It was the cause of rain, as if they're ascribing the power of sending rain to the stars directly, independently of Allah. They are the ones who, Allah Ta'ala says, have disbelieved in me and have believed in the stars. And then as for those who have believed in me and disbelieved in the stars, they are the ones who have said, مُطِرْنَا بِفَضْلِ اللَّهِ وَبِرَحْمَتِهِ They are the ones who say, we receive rain due to the grace and rahmah of Allah. This hadith is really important because it, it sets the tone for how we understand our ascription of actions to other than Allah and what we could mean. Now, Imam al-Nawawi, who is the author of the famous commentary on Sahih Muslim, he talks about this hadith. And he says that those who have disbelieved in Allah and believed in the stars, mentioned in the narration, he says this is regarding the one who says this thing, we receive rain due to this star. The one who says that while, I quote, believing that the star in and of itself is a doer that manages and spreads the rain, as was claimed by some of the people in Jahiliyyah. Whoever believes this, he said, then there is no doubt concerning his disbelief because they are ascribing the creative act of sending down the rain to other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He goes on to say, based on this, if someone said, we were given rain, be no ikatha wakatha, due to this or that star, while believing that it is from Allah's mercy and it's from His grace, but that the star is just, it's in, uh, we say amara, it's like a sign or an indication that that rain is going to come, customarily, adatan, that, that tends to happen, then as is, it's as if they said, Rain has come to us at such and such a time, and it's from Allah, right? He says this one has not disbelieved, but they should avoid speaking in these terms because it's, it's ambiguous. So what that means is if a person says, uh, we receive rain, be no this and that star, but what they mean is in conjunction with those stars appearing in the constellation at that time, We've noticed over centuries a certain ada, a certain pattern that when that happens, we tend to get rain. 
So, but they say, no, Allah Ta'ala is the one who sent the rain. It's just these are the alamat, these are the signs. And we've noticed this conjunction in the Rabtul Adi between the appearance of those stars and the downpour of rain. Not that the stars are doing anything in connection with the rain or that they act independently of Allah. Now, this has nothing to do with good luck and bad luck, but it's about language and how we use language to express things. If a person believes that luck, good or bad, is some kind of independent power operating autonomously from Allah Ta'ala, this is kufr, this is disbelief, because they are affirming the creative act of giving good fortune or bad fortune to other than Allah Ta'ala. So this would be avoided. So that's with regards to just saying uh, good luck uh, or bad luck, as well as believing in the concept of luck. If you say luck is simply one's good fortune, and it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who brings that good fortune, and we call it luck or hav, no problem. But if someone believes it's independent of Allah, it's some mysterious force that's activated when you have a four-leaf clover, or if you, you know, something happens that has no causal connection to good things, and you ascribe that power, that's, that's kufr. So you could use the term, uh, or maybe if you want to avoid it, avoid it, but on the surface it will be fine, as long as the person's beliefs are, are sound. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. The next question has to do with the Qur'an. The questioner says, does the Qur'an always have to be placed above the feet. My parents have always told me the Qur'an should never be under your feet and should always be placed on the highest shelf. Your parents have taught you well. And that's my answer. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in the Qur'an that the one who reveres and honors the sha'air of Allah that is from the taqwa, the piety of the hearts. The sha'air of Allah are the symbols of God. Anything that is connected to the sacred. So the masajid, the masahif, the books of tafsir, the books of hadith, the books of fiqh. Uh, things that are connected to deen. Some ulama would say even the sibha. Right? Should, shouldn't put it on the floor, ideally. Uh, these things should be honored and revered because they are connected to what is sacred. And Allah Ta'ala says that whoever honors those symbols of Allah, that is from the taqwa of their, of their heart. And there's a lot of stories uh, from the earliest generations up until today of people really going above and beyond in honoring the sacred symbols. But of all the sacred symbols, there is none more sacred than the Mus'haf, Al-Mus'haf al-Sharif what we call the text of the Holy Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this book. It is his kalam. And to revere the kalam is to revere the mutakallim, the speaker. Now, Ibn Abi Dawood, the hadith scholar and the son of Abu Dawood, the Sijistani, the sahib al-sunan, he has a famous book called Kitab al-Masahif, which is a compilation of hadith narrations and athar about the Qur'an and about the Mus'haf. 
And he brings a narration from one of the early Imams, Imam Ibrahim At-Taymi, Rahimahullah, who said, the generations or the generation of the Sahaba used to say, revere and honor the Mus'haf. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned in the Quran that innahu la Quranun kareem. It is a noble Quran, a sanctified Quran. And in other verses, he has described his book by saying, fi suhufin mukarrama marfu'atin mutahara. In pages ennobled and raised and pure. Elsewhere he has said, la yamassuhu illa al-mutahharun. None should touch it except those who are purified. So based on this principle of honoring the symbols of Allah and revering the kalam of Allah, based on this principle, the ulama say that any act of respect to the mushaf is sought after, matulub. It is sought after and it is praiseworthy. It is mahmud and it is accepted even if there is no specific ayah or specific hadith which describes that manner of respecting the mushaf. The way the mushaf is respected varies from culture to culture, but it's always about respect. In some cultures, they, they are not take it out unless it's wrapped. Some cultures still do this. If you go to the, to, to the Philippines, to the south, to the islands, I visited there uh, many, many years ago. Uh, when they take the mushaf from the house to the masjid, they wrap it in a cloth and they put it on top of their head and they walk like this. They don't drop it. They walk like that. And in their culture, that's how you respect the mushaf. In other cultures, you don't do that. But you, you at least have wudu. You at least carry it with respect. And you don't throw it around like you would throw around a magazine. And when you have a bookshelf with different types of books, you're not going to put it in the middle with the other books. You're, not, you're definitely not going to put it at the bottom of the shelf. You're going to put it at the top. Now, people can critique that and say, oh, people honor the mushaf and they put it on top of the shelf, but they're not reading it. Okay, if they're not reading it, that's blameworthy. But they're still doing something praiseworthy, which is to honor it by having it in the highest position. So based on that principle of adab and ihtiram and ta'zim, respect and reverence for the Qur'an, the ulama say that you don't need a specific nas, uh, a text from the Qur'an or the sunnah which describes the exact manner you show respect. It's the general principle applied in different ways, right? So that would include, going to the question, that would include not putting the mushaf on the floor. It does not matter if the floor is clean or unclean. If it's unclean, if, it's, if it has ritual impurities, najasa, then there's no question about that. If it's clean, one should not do it unless there's some situation where they don't mean to, but it happens. Right? Where, you know, sometimes people may be reciting from the mushaf while in salat, and they get to the ayah of sajda. If they don't have a chair or something to put the mushaf on, how do they make sajda? 
while still holding the small mushaf. They'll often have it folded in their hand and they make the sajda. And maybe it comes in contact with the ground, but this is not done out of disrespect. It's actually held in that way to keep it off the ground. It just may happen to come in contact with it. That's fine. But a person would not put the Qur'an on the ground uh, for, for any reason when they can avoid it. When you go to the books of fiqh, they talk about different levels of adab with how you treat the mushaf. You go to uh, Imam al-Hasqafi, rahimahullah, uh, the great Hanafi Imam. He says, and I quote, when a mushaf is tattered, mumazzaq, to the point where it is no longer read, it is to be buried just like a Muslim is buried. So if the mushaf over use has become tattered and torn in its age to the point where it's no longer being used to read, he's telling us that you need to de- treat it like you would treat a Muslim who is being buried. So his commentator, Imam Ibn Abidin al-Hanafi, he comments on that and says that this means the mushaf should be wrapped in a pure cloth and buried in a place that will, not, that will not be defiled or walked over. So you would find an area where you could bury it, a place where no one's going to walk over it or dump things on the ground and pollute it. In Al-Dakhira Al-Burhaniya, the great Hanafi Imam Al-Marghinani, he goes even further. He takes the analogy of treating the torn mushaf like you would a Muslim who is buried, and says that when the old mushaf is buried, you cover it in a white cloth, and when you bury it, he says you should even dig this lahad. You know the lahad is like a, a, a niche going into the side. He says you should dig this niche inside wherein you place the mushaf, and it shouldn't be an ordinary hole. Why does he say that? He says that because in his view, if you dig into the ground and you have the mushaf wrapped and you place it inside, you're still putting dirt on top of it. Whereas if you dig this lahad and you place it to the side, when you cover the hole with the dirt, that dirt that's covering the hole is not going on top of the mushaf. The mushaf is in this compartment in the ground. Now this is, these are from the fuqaha al-muta'akhirun. So this is not something that we say is wajib. But this is how they understood the application of adab to how you treat the mushaf when it is to be buried, in which, of course, it is going not on the ground, but into the ground. So even when you do that, there's a certain adab that you want to maintain. Uh, regarding the feet, because the questioner also asked about placing it above your feet, in Al-Fatawa Al-Bazaziyah, the Hanafi fatwa work, it says it is impermissible to extend one's feet towards the mushaf unless the mushaf is in a raised position beyond the direct line of the feet. So let's say you are, let's say you have in your house a bookshelf and you have the mushaf on the bookshelf. It's above the other books, but it's there. And next to it, you have your couch. Can you lie on your couch with your feet pointing towards the bookshelf? According to this fatwa, if the mushaf is above the direct line of the feet, it's higher, 
that would be permissible. Maybe not advisable, but it would be permissible. You're not doing something haram. But if the mushaf is in line with your feet, pointing your feet directly at it, he says it's impermissible. Uh, the idea being that this is generally seen as disrespectful and rude, it's uncouth, it's bad form, it's bad adab, bad protocol with the respect that is owed to the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, wallahu ta'ala a'lam. So the next question, this is a big one. And there's about five questions in the one question. The questioner says, when praying, I have developed the bad habit to say salat too quickly and have now started to miss words or pronunciation. Where is the most basic place online or book to find the transliteration of the salat? That's the first question, or the first couple of questions. Uh, next part, can you validate and explain the difference between a strong dua and a weak dua? Does our belief in the dua or faith in Allah help it to come to pass? Does Allah present us with signs or feelings within that we should pay attention to when we are making important decisions? So as you can see, there's about five questions here. And these are really good questions and they're common questions that people wonder about. So let's go in the order of the question. First part is, they say, I've developed this bad habit to say the salat too quickly, and I'm now starting to miss words or pronunciation. So if you find that you're offering the prayer too quickly, the solution is very, very easy. What is the solution? Slow down, right? People ask, how do I become an early riser? What techniques, what tips, what tricks, what hacks do you have to become an early riser? And the answer is, get up early. Just get up early. That's it. So the answer is to slow down. The Prophet ﷺ ordered the ummah to have a certain quality in the salat. And we call that quality umma'nina, which means, you could say it means tranquility or being at ease. And the definition of umma'nina, according to the fuqaha, based on this hadith, is that in each posture, you are still, your bones are basically in place. You're not in a constant state of movement from one posture to the other, like a flow. And you, sometimes you see people praying like that. They're, they go into ruku'ah and it's a flow from, from ruku'ah to rising. They, they don't actually stop properly in each posture. They're going too fast. That is a lack of tuma'anina. The bones have to be settled and content in each position. And the duration of each position depends on what's being recited. If it's the Qiyam, then of course it's going to be the time it takes to recite Surah Al-Fatiha and an another Surah if it's the first two rak'ahs of a Fard prayer. If it's Ruku', then it's the time it takes for you to say 
well, to, I want to avoid some of the fiqhi technicalities here. We'll just say, ideally, the time it takes to say three times, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, and the time it takes to say Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la three times in sajda. Here's the thing, if you find that you're going really quickly, even while saying that, say them five times. Right, say them five times. Some of the ulama, they, they advise the a'imma, the ones who lead prayer in the masajid, to recite the tasbihat in ruku' and sujood five times. Because what happens is, if the imam goes into ruku' just as in three times and raises, people are still making their way into ruku' and then he's going up. But if he says it five times, by the time he's done with the fifth, people have said their three. And then he rises. So this enables them to also have their own tuma'nina in the prayer and not feeling like they're being rushed. So that's for the imam, but it's also good for other people. You know, say it five times. Uh, some of the ulama of North Africa in the 1700s, they made a real important, uh, strong focus on this particular point because they saw people rushing through their prayers. So they would mention the tasbihat that you say in ruku' and sujood, the hadith mentioned saying it three times, and this hadith mentioned, mentioning saying it five times. So they would emphasize saying it five times so that people would ensure that they have that pumanina and they're not rushing through each posture. So that's one thing you should do. Uh, that's with regards to the speed of the salat. Now, with regards to the pronunciation, uh, the question is asking about uh, transliteration. Now, ideally, you, you learn how to read Arabic, and you can read it and then memorize the Arabic, because the transliteration isn't going to always give you the most accurate rendering of how to say something properly in Arabic. If I write out, what uh, in English letters, I either have to use certain diacritic marks, symbols, on the English letters to stand for letters that don't exist in English, like Baud, or I leave them and just write D-A or D-A-A-L-L-I-N. There's no guarantee that if you read that in English, you're going to say it as it should sound in Arabic. So the best thing is to learn the Arabic and if you haven't learned how to read Arabic, uh, then you can learn the, the chapters of the Qur'an and the du'as to say in the prayer uh, through talqeen. Talqeen meaning you sit with a teacher who teaches you how to repeat them with a proper pronunciation in Arabic. When I first became Muslim, I did not learn al-Fatiha from reading a transliteration. And I couldn't read Arabic, but I learned through talqeen. One of my teachers, Jazallah Khair, he he just said the verses over and over again, and he wouldn't go to the next one until I could get this one. And then he did two at a time, then three, and then four, and then Alhamdulillah, within an hour, you know, learned the Fatiha. But it was all through talqeen, just repeating after him, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, and just go through it like that. And he ensured that the pronunciation was more or less correct. That's the best thing to do with a teacher. Uh, if you don't have a, a teacher physically present and you can't connect with one live online, you have videos 
online. I don't know what the best video would be, but I'm sure you can find many videos that teach the essential du'as to say in each of the postures of the prayer. The one you really want to work on, and may take time, is the, the tashahud, the Salat al-Ibrahimiyyah, the tashahud, because that's a bit long. It's even longer than the Fatiha, so it takes people some time when they're learning how to pray to read the tashahud properly. So I don't have any particular book or site that I know of, uh, if you're going to use a book to learn these basics, I would recommend uh, the book called Being Muslim by Dr. As'ad Tarsim. And this is the book I give to every single convert who becomes a Muslim. As soon as they take their shahada, I'm giving them this book because this book is, it has everything you could possibly want as a new Muslim and it has everything you could possibly want as someone born as a Muslim who's trying to learn your foundations. I think that book is required reading for anyone trying to learn their deen uh, from scratch or recommitting to the deen uh, after having been distant for a while. So that's the question with regards to the prayer. Uh, the next part of the question was about, is about dua. They say, can you validate and explain the difference between a strong dua and a weak one? So what is the difference between a strong dua and a weak dua? Well, any dua that comes from the Qur'an or comes from the sunnah of Al-Mustafa is going to be a strong dua by definition because it's coming from wahi, from revelation. However, we have other duas as well. Duas that are not necessarily in the Qur'an or in the sunnah. Maybe the duas from the Sahaba, like the one I mentioned last night from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, uh, du'as from the Ahlul Bayt, du'as from Awliya and Salihun, you know, just very powerful expressions of ubudiyah, of servitude. So the issue here is you have lots of powerful du'as, but what really makes the du'a powerful is the heart when the person is making the du'a. And we were talking about this last night, how the Prophet wasallam says, du'a silahul mu'min, the du'a is the weapon of the believer. And the weapon is only going to be as strong as the hand that wields it. And that hand, this is the metaphor for the certainty of the heart, the strength of, of conviction that Allah is al-mujib, that he's the one who answers the dua. So if a person has certainty in the dua that they're making, it comes from the heart. And it's an expression of their own neediness and ubudiyah to Allah. That is a strong dua. Which would mean, conversely, that a weak dua would be a dua that comes from an inattentive heart. A dua that is re recited, read um, as just a habit. Ada, you know, you get used to saying it. You know, the person makes this dua after every single prayer to the point where they're just parroting it without even thinking about the meaning. And then they go, they're not even thinking about it. The Prophet ﷺ says that Allah Ta'ala does not accept the dua from a heart that is heedless and oblivious. The heart's not there, it's just the tongue. So that will be a weak du'a. 
So the certainty you bring to the dua is what makes it a strong dua. Then the questioner asks, does our belief in the dua or faith in Allah help it come to pass? This is also a common question. And the answer is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Kareem, Al-Wahhab, Al-Mannan. He gives out of his generosity and largesse. And one of the means of receiving that divine karam is through what we call at-tadarru' which is to implore deeply from the heart which is to ask and beg with iman and certainty that Allah Ta'ala is the giver. So the questioner obviously has something in mind. Maybe they're making dua for something and they're not seeing the answer or they're wondering when that answer is going to come. And to address that questioner here, maybe you're making dua for things and you're wondering about the answer. So let's address how we approach the answer to that dua in the different ways the answer may come. When we make dua, we have to observe an inner adab, an inner etiquette. And that inner etiquette is basically relinquishing. You know, you have to let go of certain things. You have to let go of the assumption that you know what is best for yourself and that's why you're asking for it. Person's begging, making dua every single day. Ya Allah, let me marry that girl. But in that dua that they're asking, Day in and day out, there is an assumption that they know that is the best girl for them to marry. Maybe they're right, but they should entertain the possibility that maybe that's not the case. And they don't want it to be that way, but you have to have that space in the heart to leave it to Allah Ta'ala. Because you can make dua for something and you think it's best for you, and you get it, and it becomes a huge problem in your life. Allah answered your dua. You got exactly what you wanted. Good luck. The permissible meaning. So when you make dua, you have to have that certainty as well as that trust in Allah Ta'ala that He knows best what is for you. So how do you create that space? You could say it or you could just have that feeling, you know, leaving the matter to Allah. You know, say... Ya Allah, I ask for this thing, if it is better for me in this life and the next. That's the istikhara in a nutshell. The istikhara dua is essentially that. Oh Allah, if you know that this thing is good for me in my deen and in my dunya, in my here and now and my hereafter, then decree it for me and facilitate it for me. And if you know that it is worse for me in my deen and dunya, my here and now and my hereafter, then turn me away from it and turn it away from me and then decree something better than it and make me content with that thing. That's the meaning of the istikhara. So that kind of state that we find in the dua of istikhara should be in all of the du'as, whether it's bilisan al-maqal or bilisan al-hal, whether you 
you actually verbalize it or whether you just have that feeling and you let it go. You want the thing. You think it's the best thing. You hope it's the best thing. But you also recognize, I don't know. Allah knows. So, Ya Allah, if this is better for me, then give it to me. Facilitate it. I feel that it's better for me. You know best. That is something you should bring into the dua. Because not every single dua answered is going to be beneficial for you. Right? You can make dua for that girl to get married to her. And it turns out to be a nightmare. You can make dua for, for children and you get a child and they become very rebellious and they become a huge fitna in your life and yeah, a huge headache. Like It happens. So understand that when you make a dua for something, you have to give that space. And also understand that Allah answers your duas in any event, but it may not always be in the exact form you anticipated. So there's different ways the dua is answered. The mashayikh, they mention that there's three or four possibilities with our duas. Either you make the dua and Allah grants it to you immediately. And by immediately, in the time of his choosing, uh, but it's soon. Right? You, you make the dua and then it happens relatively quickly. The other possibility is that you make dua for something and Allah Ta'ala grants it to you, but at a time of his choosing later on, at the time of Allah's choosing. So delay in the answer to the dua is not a denial. Delay is not denial. When Prophet Musa السلام, made the dua, against Fir'aun and asked Allah to destroy Fir'aun, that dua was not answered immediately. Between that dua and Fir'aun's actual destruction was 40 years. So delay is not denial. That's the second possibility. Third possibility is that the dua is answered, but it's not good for you. So I mean, you don't get the exact thing you prayed for, but you receive the reward for the dua, and the reward for that is stored for you in the akhirah, in the hereafter. You receive that reward, and it ends up being much better than if you had been granted the dua in this life. And some add a fourth, which is related to this, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that that thing is actually bad for you. So out of His mercy, He prevents it from you, and you receive good in avoiding that thing. But you may not know that until much later on. How many times have you wanted something and then years down the road you realize, well, I'm glad I didn't get that thing. Because if I did, this is how things would have turned out. So you have to be mindful of these things. So they ask after this, does Allah present us with signs or feelings within that we should pay attention to when we are making important decisions. Uh, they're not mentioning the istikhara here, but that's essentially what the istikhara is all about. The istikhara prayer, which is a prayer followed by the dua, transmitted by Sahih, Imam al-Bukhari in his Sahih and other collections. The Prophet ﷺ would teach the dua of istikhara like he would teach a chapter of the Qur'an. And that highlights how important it is to memorize that dua. But if you haven't memorized it, you can look it up. Just type up dua v'istikhara on Google. You'll easily find it because it's so common. Uh, 
the best practice for determining what you should do is to pray the istikhara, the two rak'ahs followed by that dua. As far as the etiquettes and the meanings, uh, I did a khutbah on that. I don't know when, a couple of years ago, it seems. A couple of years ago, we did a khutbah on the istikhara itself. Basically, the answer of the istikhara is going to be through a few things, a few possible things. Um, sometimes it comes in the form of inshirah al-sadr, where you are somewhat indecisive. You know, maybe you're leaning 60-40 on a decision. 60 yay, 40 nay, even 80-20. But after the istikhara, you experience this expansion where you just feel such contentment in knowing that option A is the superior choice instead of option B. It just, it just happens. Like a, sign, a kind of yaqeen sets upon you that you didn't have before. Sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes you're still a bit indecisive, but you find that between option A and option B, you know, doing something versus not doing something, you find that the option for doing something is the answer because doors that might have been closed before are starting to open, leading you down to that option. Or alternatively, doors that may have been open for that decision are actually closing and it's getting harder. That's a possible indication that you shouldn't go through with that thing. So there's different ways you can determine it. It's not always going to be through some dream. It's not by praying it and then opening the mushaf, just looking and stopping at a random verse and seeing if it's a verse of adab or rahmah. That's not how you do it. Uh, but the khutbah I gave, it's online. Uh, if you look it up on the MCCGP YouTube page, you can find that khutbah where we go into some detail. Uh, next question, and this is now we've finished that question. Uh, question number six says, please explain when is the best time to pray Fajr? Is it okay to pray right before sunrise or at the beginning of the Fajr time? So notice that the questioner has given us only two options. And the, option, the best option is neither. So you have praying right as Fajr comes in versus praying right before the sunrise. Now, if you have to pray one, at one time or the other and you can't pray in the middle, then that's a different story. There's more to this question than meets the eye. Because how do we determine the prayer times? We determine the prayer times by the sun the movement of the sun, just as we determine the, the months by the, the moon. So the moon is for the shuhur, the months, and the sun is for the prayers. Fajr begins at what we call al-fajr al-sadiq, the true fajr, and it ends right before sunrise. That true fajr, al-fajr al-sadiq, is when the sky around the horizon at the edge begins to increase in light. But now before that, you have sometimes this dim light at the edge that sometimes appears for several minutes. Right? They say about 3 degrees or 12 minutes. That is called al-fajr al-kathib. That's not actually fajr. So the difference between that false fajr and the true fajr is about 12 minutes. But that's still the earliest time. But the issue we have is, and I don't know where the questioner is located. 
I'm going to presume they're here. Uh, most of the questions tend to come from this area or they come from the UK. So in the UK, it's even more so. So my answer would apply for here and the UK. The issue is what degree are you going by for the beginning of Fajr? If you go on these prayer time apps, and we talked about this in the Fard Ein class a long time ago, we talked about the prayer times, and we, talk, we mentioned how when you go into the prayer apps, you have the option to pick, do you go with Isna, Muslim World League, Umar Qura, Egyptian General Authority, or the one I always see, the Islamic University of Karachi. I don't know how that one got there, but I, I guess they, they developed something. But when you go to the app, pick Fajr for your location using each of them. I, I have my old notes here. Uh, Isna uses 15 degrees. Muslim World League, 18 degrees. Umar Qura, 19 degrees. Egyptian General Authority, 19.5. Islamic University of Karachi, 18 degrees. So when I gave that class on the times of the prayer, it was the summertime. So I calculated the Fajr time when we gave the class using each of these methods. And these are the times I got for Fajr. So in the summertime, for Isna, 4.26 a.m. Muslim World League, 4.02. You see the problem here? Umar Qura, 3.58 a.m. Egyptian General Authority, 349. Islamic University of Karachi, 402. You see the problem here? This becomes a challenge. So what should you do? I mean, there's different options, but for Fajr, generally 15 degrees is the best approximation for where we are because that is the middle point between 12 degrees and 18 degrees or 19 for some. It's kind of in the middle. So if you pray according to 15 degrees, you're going to be in safe territory, inshallah ta'ala. But if you have some reason to doubt or you're not sure, the best option is to wait for the Fajr time to enter and then you know, give it a little bit of time. So like these days, Fajr comes in 6.28, 6.30. See, I, we have differences. I never pray Fajr as soon as it comes in like that because I'll stop eating if I'm fasting. Because see, then it's, if you're fasting, there's the question of when do you stop eating? And it's better to have ihtiyat, you know, caution and stop eating earlier rather than later. But when it comes to the prayer, ihtiyat or caution dictates that you wait a little bit so that you know that you're praying at Fajr when it's absolutely Fajr. So, you know, it's not light outside, but you see the light. You see a little bit. It's very obviously Fajr. As opposed to praying it a minute or two after the, your uh, then alarm clock goes off. And it's still pitch black dark outside. And okay, maybe it's 15 degrees, but you know. The superior thing is to wait a little while. Just khurujan anil khiraf, as the scholars say. Just to avoid that difference and that discrepancy. If you pray it towards sunrise, you're, you're also pushing it a bit and risking missing the prayer. Now, it's if it's between the earliest time and the latest time, it's preferable to pray at the latter time. But not before sun not at sunrise, obviously. But if it's going to be a little bit light outside when you're done, that's good. That's fine. 
But if you pray right in the middle, that's superior. Because you avoid the, the issue with the degrees and the controversy about how it's determined. But you're also not pushing it to, towards the end. So if you, have, if you divided the, the Fajr time from the time it enters to the time it exits at sunrise, if you divide it into thirds, the superior time would probably be praying it in the final, the beginning of the final third. If you can't do that, then around the middle, or at least when you know for sure that it's Fajr, by some discernible sign outside on the horizon. If you avoid praying it in the earliest time, then you're basically avoiding that, the issue of degrees and whether or not it's properly Fajr. So... Allah Ta'ala knows best. A uh, couple of more questions, and these are relatively simple questions. Uh, question number seven, is wearing pants or sweatpants below your ankles haram as a man? I heard Allah doesn't even look at you on the day of judgment if you do this. Uh, this should be familiar to all of you here who come for Isha because we discussed this at some length a few weeks ago when we were reading Riyadh al-Salihin. Imam al-Nawi pinned a whole chapter on this issue of Isbal al-Izar. So the, there's a, a number of hadith that describe this. To summarize the answer, in virtually all of those hadith, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam says, Man asbala izarahu khuyala'a He mentions this phrase. Whoever drags their izar, their lower garment, khoyala. Now in the Arabic language, this word khoyala, khoyala, a, bil fatha, it's mansub. So it's in the, we call it the accusative form. And according to the grammarians, this is called al maf'ul li ajlihi. Al maf'ul li ajlihi. You have maf'ul bihi, you have tamyiz, you have hal. Al-maf'ul li-ajlihi is a noun in the mansub form that describes the inner state of the person when they're doing that action. I mean, af'al qalb right? If you said, Sajadtu lillahi shukran. Right, you, the, the shukr, you're expressing the state of your sajda, internal state, right? So what that means is the hadith is telling us whoever drags their garments while their internal state is one of khoyala, which means arrogance and pride, then that is the one who receives this threat that what is below the ankles is in the fire or Allah will not look upon that person on the day of judgment. And on the basis of this, if the person has their garments below the ankle, but it's not out of pride necessarily, not, then that action hovers over being neutral or being disliked. It depends on different factors, but it's not haram, and they're not, they're not receiving the threat that is contained in this hadith. That is the short answer. That's the answer of the Jumhur, the majority of the ulama. That's how they understood this hadith. Uh, wallahu subhanahu wa ta'ala a'lam. As far as the phrase, 
Allah does not look at that person. This is a wa'id, it's a divine threat that Allah Ta'ala will not give that person the gaze, the special gaze of mercy and affection. Because Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala sees all. He is Al-Basir. So, لَيَنظُرُ اللَّهُ إِلَيْهِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ That doesn't mean that Allah does not see the person. It means they did not receive the gaze of Rahmah, the gaze of affection, the gaze of Fadl and Ni'mah and Karam. So that's a divine threat. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. The last question says, clearly music that has explicit language and talk about inappropriate things is haram. What about music as in just beats and no lyrics at all? Is it permissible? So we did a class in the Fardain program talking exclusively about this topic. And we gave lots of detail about the view of the majority of the fuqaha from the four schools, as well as those from the four schools and other schools who took a divergent view uh, regarding the issue of musical instruments. But what we mentioned is that uh, there is no difference of opinion, as the questioner rightly noted. There is no difference of opinion that uh, music that accompanies of uh, vile, foul, immoral lyrics is haram. No one doubts that. Even those minority of scholars that allowed musical instruments agree that kind of music would be haram. The minority of ulama who allowed for certain musical instruments allowed them in the absence of vile lyrics. So just the instruments themselves or permissible, wholesome, otherwise halal lyrics. Now the questioner is asking about just beats, percussion. And the answer is that Percussion, beats, drums in general would be permissible. There are stringent views, particularly within the Hanafi school, that, are, that take a very strong stance even against certain forms of drums and percussion, or views in the school that limit the use of the duff to walimas and the like. That is a very strict and stringent view but it has its basis. But the majority of the fuqaha would allow for drums, the duff, and other than the duff, percussion instruments, um, as long as, as the questioner noted, there's no lyrics, or at least there's no lyrics that are foul. If the lyrics are fine, and it accompanies a duff, then that's, that's halal, inshallah ta'ala. Well, right, right. Exactly, and that's what the, the ulama had noted. Uh, those who took a more lenient view on music, they noted that all of the hadith that mention the instruments always mention them in conjunction with other haram activities that are clearly haram, like intermingling with men and women and drinking alcohol and things like that. And as we mentioned in the Fardain class, that is because in the pre-modern world before you had recorded music, all music was live. And most live music is accompanying those kinds of behaviors. So, yeah, so if, if you have, let's say you have some permissible nasheed with a duff, but people are intermingling and dancing and behaving inappropriately, it's not that the music is haram, but being in that environment as it's played would be haram. So the music in and of itself it has its own ruling, but when it's 
mix with other things, then the entire thing should be avoided, for sure. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. Wa sallallahu wa sallama ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.